Hi, I'm Charles Stanton. I'm on the faculty of the Honors College at UNLV and the Boyd School of Law. I'm Lana Weatherald. I'm a third-year law student. And welcome to Social Justice. Social Justice, a conversation. A conversation. Yes, hi, I'm Charles, and uh, we're, we're going to start our show off today with sort of an interesting um, situation in the state of Texas. Um, as you may know, uh, both the Attorney General and the Governor of Texas are up for re-election. And it's a very interesting situation in Texas. Um, Texas, uh, of course, being our biggest state, one of our most popular states, um, has a very unusual political system, uh, a system basically where it seems that you can avoid actually interacting with people and still win elective office. Um, very interesting article today in the Wall Street Journal regarding the race for attorney general. Uh, and of course, uh, Paxton, of course, is the attorney general in the state of Texas. Um, he's a gentleman who's under indictment and, who, and he has also been uh, uh, cited by the Bar Association. That a formal complaint has been filed against him regarding his involvement in the uh, attempt to uh, overthrow uh, the election. The attorney general is rarely seen campaigning. And uh, in that same league is the governor of Texas, who also is rarely seen campaigning. And it's very, very interesting because the, in, in olden days, the essence of politics was interaction with the public, uh, you know, getting around, going out to rallies and different stuff, and, and meeting the people, basically. Uh, most of the time, hopefully, people that supported you, but on numerous occasions, probably people who opposed you. But there was a discussion, there was uh, 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 various viewpoints of opinion uh, interchanged, and it sort of is what made campaigning something that was uh, exciting and American. And now today, with the advent of television and social media, uh, plus the huge budgets that uh, the, the candidates have, particularly Republican candidates in the state of Texas, you really don't have to meet anybody. You can basically sit in a studio if you want to, like we're doing today, and basically proclaim whatever it is that you want to proclaim uh, without any questioning, without any challenging. I think it's something that um, really is a, a great contrast to the two Democratic candidates in the state, Beto O'Rourke, who's running for governor, and, and Ms. Garza, who's running for attorney general, where they're running all over the state, basically, going to almost every, every town, village, hamlet, principality that they can. And yet that involvement in interacting with the people of the state um, doesn't seem to be benefiting them at all because basically they're both clearly behind in the polls. And uh, I'd like to, you know, uh, get Lana's perspective on this. Yeah. So I think what's happening in Texas is, is sort of um, happening all over the country, right? You see a we're moving away from boots on the ground. We're moving away from canvassing. We're, we're, we're moving away from um, having people that, you know, support you uh, make those phone calls and, and knock on doors. And that sort of idea of winning an election by spreading your knowledge through channels that are not just money driven um, and by actually doing the work, uh, we've sort of gotten away from that. Um, and I think people don't feel the same connection to the candidates in, 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 that are running for office in, in, at the local level, even, you know, uh, 
at the national level, I, I think there is a fundamental distrust because these people are, like I say, not knocking on doors, not making phone calls. What are they doing? Uh, they're paying for massive media blitzes. Um, they're paying for, you know, Twitter ads to come up on very uh, particularized sets of for coming up for very particularized sets of people. They're paying for Facebook ads to come up for very particularized sets of people. Um, these are not, you know, you don't want to say these are not free and fair elections, right? Because these are usually done within the, the bounds of the law. But this is what we've created. We've created sort of a monster where we don't have um, elections as as we once did. And, and social media is part of it. But money is just as much a part of it. If you can afford all the ad space, you are going to win the election. Um, and it becomes so much more about money than it does about what beliefs are and, and how many people in your community actually trust you. So what's happening in Texas um, here with the AG, I think, is, is just a symptom of a larger problem where we do not um, fundamentally view or handle elections in the way that we once did. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because in a, in a sense, it, it gives almost people immunization or immunity, because uh, in the case of the governor of Texas, we're still waiting for the, the final word or the ultimate word or the truth as to what actual, actually happened in Uvalde. And uh, he's basically avoided basically campaigning and avoiding people questioning him. Uh, he really doesn't do interviews in the sense where you have people who are uh, independent or not connected to uh, the Republican Party. And in the case of the attorney general, aside from the fact that you know he's been indicted and he's also been san- uh, possibly going to be sanctioned by the, uh, the legal community there, the question of, as his role as number one law enforcement officer in the state, should he not have been more active or should he not be more active now as to getting a conclusory report on actually what happened that day? And it's interesting in, in contrast to Beto O'Rourke and, and Garza, how they've been going around and um, uh, trying to uh, get this uh, issue finally uh, settled for the public. And yet it's also interesting and in, in, uh, how I think that people in, in so many of these states, there is such a tribal atmosphere that it, in certain cases it doesn't seem to matter what, the, what my guy did or my gal did, as long as they're Republican or, in, in, in the other case, Democrat, um, I'm going to give them a free pass. Right. It doesn't matter that they've been facing indictment for seven years, right? This is my person and this is my champion and this is what's going to happen. And then, you know, you, you mentioned even if they, they, they may not know, you know, th- this may not be something that they're aware of. I'm not sure if you asked the, you know, the average citizen in Texas, do you know what's happening with your attorney general that they would be able to answer that honestly or know that that he's facing indictment. And I think that comes from a lack of maybe the other side, not um, campaigning properly against him. If that's not public knowledge, if that's not common knowledge, or maybe it just comes from, oh, hey, we don't want to we want to keep these kind of things under wraps because they do sort of threaten the idea of, oh, one man can be immune from. Sir, and, and we talked about that a lot the last show. But but now here we are again, is, is we're showing sort of that these politicians can become immune from their bad acts. Uh, and, and that's that's frightening. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly, you know. It, we, we're in we're in a situation, I think, in our country, where, in a sense, there are a lot of attacks on democracy. Um, there was an an article in today's New York Times um, referring to Moore versus Harper. It's a case that's going to go before the Supreme Court, and the the uh, basically the gist of the case is this: whether the final word on elections in any state 
will ultimately be decided by the legislature or will it be, or will it be decided by the courts? And there's a, a number of states, attorney general, who signed on to this uh, 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 friend of the court plea before the Supreme Court that don't want the courts to have the final word. And I think in, in our highly politicized time, that's pretty, pretty scary because it was only really the, the fact that the judiciary, both Republican and Democrat, because there were a lot of Republicans who heard these cases as well, who finally validated last, uh, the, the last presidential election. And now I think if it's going to be thrown into the legislature, um, you're really seeing the erosion of people's right to vote and, and more than people's right to vote, the right to vote in and of itself means nothing. If it doesn't count. Exactly. <laughs> right? You just you put the nail right in the, in, in, in the wood there. That's exactly right. And of course, uh, we're seeing that all across the board in, you know, a lot of the candidates who are running for office, particularly in the governorships, are basically uh, saying that uh, they're not going to commit to honor the results of the election, even before the, the vote has started or anything. And it's almost in a sense like that the election, the right to vote is beside the point. Oh, absolutely. And I think we started seeing this six years ago in 2016 when there and, you know, this was on both sides where they started to uh, admit that there may have been some Russian interference. And then we saw it, of course, in 2020 with the fundamental distrust of what happened in our election. Uh, so the door has been opened here. Uh, we can start to and we have started to build fundamental distrust in our electoral system. And then what happens? Things like this. Um, the idea that then we should, well, pass this on to a more responsible body in the court system. Shouldn't we? Well, look at 2016, look at 2020. It's not right. Um, and it is very scary, but the door has been open now for six years. So I, I, I'm almost shocked that we haven't seen something like this sooner, especially in the wake of 2020. But um, you're 100% right. If, if you are a voter, uh, be concerned and start, start making sure that everything... As far as your plan is in place, make sure that you are not being vote. You're not being moved to a, a separate polling place. Make sure that all of your addresses and things are up. There's no reason you should be turned away at the polls because, God forbid, um, your voice, your vote may not count for nefarious reasons. Make sure it's not on account of something you had control over. Right? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely, Lana. And it's also interesting the the candidates that uh, the parties are running. Um, that it used to be that people who ran for office uh, needed to have experience in the justice system or experience in the legislature or experience in, in, in the court system. And you have people running now who, um, on their face, are totally unqualified mm -hmm. to be, to be in, uh, uh, running for, for statewide office or running for the Senate. I mean, uh, the, if you look at the governor's, governor's race in Pennsylvania, if you look at the Senate race in Georgia, um, these two fellows, I mean, they have no qualifications to right. be running. They're held up as, as men of the people and they're, they're a part of, of your community. And they're, but the, what matters here is that you do need real life experience. And these are not um, the sorts of, of situations where you, <laughs> you want someone inexperienced in these seats. And, and it shocks me that we are able to buy into this narrative that these individuals are just, you know, they're one of us. They're one of our community. We don't want one of us sitting in one of these jobs. As, as, as crass as that may sound, we want the best and the brightest here. Um, and, and to not even have the bare minimum qualifications to hold that post and still be considered as a legitimate candidate, if not the potential winner, is horrifying. Yeah, and I think what's also very, very interesting is 
that um, there used to be in the in the, the various states. There used to be debates, you know, mostly sponsored to the the League of Women Voters or other organizations, and now you're seeing a lot of candidates uh, who will not agree to debate. Absolutely. And they know they'll get beat, right? They know that their inexperience will show, that their lack of education on these real issues will show. Um, and then it's just viewed as, well, we don't want to give them to the moon and give these people to the media. We don't want to have them, you know, possibly be viewed in, in a... But, but what it really is, is a test. I mean, what it really is, is these people cannot muster up the strength to pass the test of being challenged live and being challenged on, on the things that they need to know about. Uh, and it it should really uh, it should scare people that we're not seeing televised debates for local elections like we used to. Uh, why is that? I think you should do some deep digging into hmm. Why can't these supposedly um, people that are going to hold uh, high esteemed offices? Why can't they answer questions mm-hmm. about the things that will be facing them every day at work? That should be easy enough, huh? Yeah, I would I would think so. But the the other thing that I that I that I noticed too, which I think is interesting. Is I think I think it's inexperience, yes. I think it's lack of knowledge, yes. But I also think that there is there is an element of this that is almost that we're above being questioned. Yeah, that absolutely. We, that we have us, we have we have the way, and anybody who challenges us or criticizes us is an infidel. Mm-hmm. It, it's very it's very interesting when you see some of the rallies that these people have, and um, there's no like even thought or conception that there's anything debatable about what the candidates are doing but the essence of the essence of good politics the essence of a democracy is that these ideas are kicked around between the various parties or individuals themselves and and that seems to be that seems to be going out too that basically uh you're having a situation where you're getting unqualified people a lot of times talking about conspiracy theories uh, and it has a, it resonates with a lot of people. And, and, you know, I, I don't, I can't exactly answer why that is, but uh, it's certainly not helpful to getting the most qualified people in office without no. a doubt. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, okay. So we are about halfway through the program here and I think it's time to shift gears to maybe a, a little bit more exciting of a topic, certainly, uh, a, a, certainly dark and certainly something that, um, needs to be addressed, but it's the, it's the middle of the NFL season. We're getting going here. And, um, you know, as as the NFL has progressed, certainly diversity has become, uh, a, a benchmark. 70% of NFL players are African-American, right? But then when you look in positions of power within the NFL and you look at head coaches and you look at owners, those numbers start to become almost a diametric opposition to to the, the numbers we see with players. Um, there are very few African-American coaches, very few African-American owners. Um, and when they do get in those positions, they are held to a completely different standard. So I, I would like to take some time because football is a passion of mine mm-hmm. uh, to talk about this, this sort of racial disparity that we've been seeing within the NFL and, and why that is. Um, you know, I, I think it comes from for many reasons, right? You don't want um, one of America's, you know, premier industries to all of a sudden be predominantly African-American, right? That's That would be against what so many of uh, largely Republicans, but I would even venture to say some Democrats would, would feel some sort of way about that. But then this that's not 
I mean, it's it's fundamentally wrong because at, at the end of the day, uh, Africans-Americans are more successful at the sport. And then you see a lot of these black coaches are more successful than their white counterparts, but are, again, held to completely differing standards. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting how the black coach in America, even the one that's hired, seems to have a very short shelf life. So in other words, the guy who was the coach of the Miami Dolphins. Brian Flores. Yeah, who they won like the last seven or eight games of the season. um, He was fired. So as far as a productivity uh, standard is that you can be uh, a coach who's white and you can get two, three, sometimes four seasons out of, you know, basically being unsuccessful. And you can have a, 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 a black coach who is who is successful and has the potential for greater success, and they uh, and they get rid of him. I think the ownership has a lot to do with it. Correct. You know, I think that's a that's a big factor that they they don't feel comfortable with having uh, uh, minority minority coaches. Um, the idea of the Rooney Rule was supposedly <laughs> that we're going to you know uh, 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 broaden diversity. Um, get more people of, of uh, color uh, as coaches. And, uh, you know, that was that was the idea. But the rule really hasn't worked out really that well mm. because it's something where basically they go through a process, but basically the process that they go through at the, at, at the end of the at the end of the line, uh, they know who they're going to hire already, but they, they have to go. They they grudgingly have right. to go through with it. But I think that I think that there's a um, there's a, a very weird uh, uh, dichotomy in judgment between when when a, when a, a black coach or black uh, 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 GM not as successful as a white coach, but it has the all the trappings of becoming successful. I think there's a different way of judging them, and I think it's interesting. I think the NBA situation just to drop in on that for a second, is very, very interesting. You know, um, when uh, the Los Angeles Clippers had uh, their franchise changed over uh, to Steve Ballmer, the guy who was one of the uh, big parties in Microsoft, because the owner basically uh, had made all kinds of racist comments, everybody thought that that was setting a new standard for behavior. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now, basically, you've got the guy... From the uh, Celtics, from the well, well, from the Celtics and the Suns. Yeah, I mean the, the guy from the Suns, of course, Sarver. He he finally said, "Well, you know, I'm going to sell the team. I'm going to sell the women's team, and I'm going to sell the men's team." But uh, I think if he hadn't if he hadn't done that, he would have stayed on. He Absolutely, he you know, he would have done his year of probation or purgatory or whatever you want to call it. But. It's really something that, like, I, I don't understand, like, the the, the thinking of, of, of the NBA in the sense that you have uh, basically a majority of African-American players on the team, and you have a guy saying all kinds of racist stuff, and in addition to the fact that he also was involved in, in, in um, being derogatory toward women, uh, and uh, they try to excuse the behavior or... They try to avoid really facing it, and uh, they say, "Well, we'll suspend them for a while." And a, you know. a year, which, in the grand scheme of things, 
is nothing. You know what I mean? It, it, it just mind boggling um, that 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 was handled that way and that there was never a public apology. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that this was something that was just, well, it should be expected of this guy. He was always kind of an affair. Really? Yeah, uh, this yeah. is an NBA owner. And, and the yeah. NBA holds a special place in the heart of the culture, right? Uh, a yeah. lot of what the NBA does ends up becoming a, a popular popular culture. I mean, the NBA ha- has a stronghold, and not only for the African-American community, but the community writ large. And for this guy to be espousing those nasty, horrendous beliefs, and then for the Suns, you know, front office um, to not come out and, and even make some sort of yeah. statement it, 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 to completely, you know, disavow the things he was saying. I, I don't. That was handled very poorly. But this is not the first instance of major league sports yeah. handling incidents like this incredibly yeah. poorly. Yeah. But you have to think about who the vast majority of that fan base is. Yeah. Um, but just still, I, you would think we've come to the point, especially given that the vast majority of players are African-American, not necessarily the case in the MLB, but certainly the case in the NFL and the NBA, uh, that this is how the, we handle racial issues still, you yeah. know, that it's yeah. some T-shirts and it's, you know, yeah. some things on this. And then when the guy really comes out and shows racial vitriol, we do absolutely not. I'll suspend him for a year. No, I mean, I'm glad he's gone now and I'm glad he's out the door. But that was the answer. That was yeah. the original answer. I, mortifying. Yeah, well, it's also interesting, you know, the, the, the case with the guy who was the coach of the Celtics. And um, I find it hard to believe whatever whatever his transgressions were, that this was not something that... that did not exist in the organization. No, and I will say very plainly, um, you know, obviously he's an NFL coach, but in the NFL and the NBA sort of do play by different rules here. But if Bill Belichick, I mean, nasty stuff. If he was caught doing that, nothing would have happened. You know what I mean? It's it's a stark comparison with what I think happened with the Celtics coach with what have happened if the same were to have happened to a white coach. Uh, I I don't think they would have been held to the same standard at all, like we had discussed a little bit earlier with the NFL. Um, And and not to say what he did wasn't shameful. and. But but that was shocking that the level of vitriol, much like Tiger Woods did for, you know, simple adultery, you, yeah. the level of vitriol that these athletes, these superstars who are in their community and actually you know, receive for minor transgressions in the grand scheme of horrible transgressions done by major league sports uh, is interesting. Yeah, well, I'll just I'll just on this subject, I'll just end on this note. And that is the game has grown so big, though. Yeah. You know, that when we were kids and we watched the game, the game is enormous. Mm-hmm. And and the the television uh, popularity of the game, but more than the television popularity of the game, it's the gigantic, humongous increase in gambling and in betting mm-hmm. that really, in a sense, almost dwarfs the sport. It, that's how extensive it is. And the the interest of all the major players to keep things going, to keep, you know, you have DraftKings, you have FanDuel, you have probably a lot of other sites I never heard of. Right. Well, every major casino now is running a mobile sports book, right? So Casino uh, Caesars has a mobile sports book. MGM has a mobile sports book. Um, you know, so these are all... It doesn't matter where you live. I mean, even in Las Vegas, where DraftKings doesn't operate and FanDuel doesn't operate, well, guess what? You'll download the Caesars app and you'll still right. bet from there. So, And this is state by state by state, slowly but surely. They're all passing laws, uh, you know, that that green light mobile, mobile gambling um, and sports gambling writ large. So I think you're 100% right. This will become, sports will go beyond just, you know, a cultural moment and will go beyond, you know, just uh, like a camaraderie thing and it will become an economic stronghold, mm-hmm. more so than it already 
already is more so that as much money is as involved in sports now you're 100 percent right and and i think we need to start considering taxing some of that sports betting mm. revenue i know a lot of states have but that's not always the concern um and i think yeah the money that's going to come into play with sports in the next ooh, i'll even go five years is going to be unlike anything we we have ever seen yeah it's not like just betting on horses 50 years ago no, this is not. something i mean you can no. bet on the what second something will happen no, you know what color uniform you know, it's, though it's, it's, it's insane it it, it 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 is kind of insane if you really if you really step back from it, and you know there are there are people who you know there are people who can gamble responsibly, but it it really it really is a temptation to people. Oh, absolutely! At a certain point, when you can gamble, like who's going to get the first first down? Right. Who's going to catch? I mean, these are things that, and it must be it must be an enormous. Um, uh, money maker for, for the organizations right. that that do this because the odds are almost horrendous, horrendous right. against the you know against the better of course yeah yeah so I wanted to talk uh, uh, before we, before we leave you today on uh, a very interesting uh, uh, article that was in the in the Wall Street Journal having to do with uh, voting the voters they did a survey of the voters. Uh, in, in the United States, Democratic and Republican, regarding regarding the question, one, they asked them two questions. One question was, uh, "Do you still consider America the greatest country on earth?" And the other question was, "Do you believe by hard work alone, regardless of your race, um, you can become successful?" And it's very fascinating. The numbers are very fascinating because. Of the of the voters that they polled, who who said they were, you know, democratic, sixty one percent said they agreed that America was the greatest country on earth, versus ninety one percent of the Republican voters. As to the dint of you know hard work alone being, you could be able to be successful just on the dint of hard work alone, presuming that all races are equal. 85% of the voters who were Republicans said, if you work hard, you're likely to get ahead in America. 53% of the Democratic voters said that they didn't vote, that, 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 that was, that it was only 53%. So, you know, when you, when you look at that, you see like a really divided, a really divided country. And uh, I just wanted to get your thoughts on Atlanta vis-a-vis, you know, the, the disparity in those numbers is like kind of glaring, and I have my own. I have my own. Uh, what shall we say? Theory on it. I'd, I'd love to hear what you have to say. You know, I'm it. curious who, the, who definitely who who was polled in this uh, mm-hmm. because I, I'm not sure that nine out of ten Republicans would say, especially in Joe Biden's America, that this is mm-hmm. uh, the greatest country mm-hmm. in the world. Uh, so I, I'm very I'm curious as to who they polled with this. Um, but you know what? I, I do think there's a, a level of patriotism that the Democratic Party could l- learn from the Republican Party. Um, it, and and maybe if we had a little bit more pride in what our country was and or at least is capable of doing, people would be willing to go put more boots on the ground and be willing to actually make those changes that we need so desperately. Um, so, so yeah, this is scary in a way, but I, I, I'm not super surprised. Mm. I think the Republican Party is, is one of, of known of patriotism and, and known for nationalism mm. and known for support of whatever it is we're doing. And if we're, we're number one, um, I, I, you know, th- this doesn't doesn't shock me in any way, mm. but I think what it should do um, is force the Democrats to look, well, why, well, if we're not the best country in the world, what am I doing sitting around um, in control of the House, the Congress, mm. and the presidency not yeah. doing anything about it? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and as far as working hard, you know, I, it's, it's a tough call, right? Because I think it, uh, it comes from 
it, it comes from a, a place where certain certain locations are, are dependent on what what your lot in is in life and who your parents mm. were is your lot in in life, how you look is your lot in life. So, again, it's who who were these people that were pulled. Um, but I like to believe that if people work hard, they they can always get where they want mm. to be in America. And I think that that, I'm, I'm, you know, I might be a. Uh, getting ahead of myself and saying that, but I, I do believe that to be true. Shocking that uh, more Republicans believe they're the greatest country in the world, but then less Republicans believe that if they work hard, they couldn't get ahead in America. I think those those two things don't really make sense, but yeah. hey. So um, with that, I think we're um, coming to the end of our conversation here. And sorry to end on such a dark note, but I do believe that if you work hard, you can get head, ahead in America, right? I mean, look at me. I'm sitting here in, in law school right now talking to a professor and <laughs> I didn't come from much. So I, I think uh, I think there's some truth to working wow. hard and getting ahead in America. Um, I am from Tampa, so I just want to say a quick minute. Um, prayers out to everybody and hope you stay safe out there in Tampa, Florida in the wake of Ian. Uh, and thank you guys for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our show. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to contact us at Wethel1, that's W-E-T-H-E-L-1 at nevada.unlv.edu or to contact Professor Charles Stanton, contact him at C-H-A-R-L-E-S, that's Charles.Stanton, S-T-A-N-T-O-N at unlv.edu. See you next time. time.